Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so happy to have Karen Dion here in the studio with me. Karen, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks, T. I'm really excited to be here today. <laughs> oh, well, it's good to see you. And thanks for driving from, um, you're, you're in the Detroit area, right? Right. And then came, came down for the, the show, and it's, it's brilliant to see you. And, and Roger, we've got a studio audience. Roger's um, behind the glass with Stephanie today. Mm-hmm. Um, and the occasion is The Marsh King's Daughter, your, your novel, The Thriller, this psychological suspense thriller um, yes. is on the table here with us. <laughs> right. Um, it was it was out this summer, and I I didn't get a chance to talk with you then. So you're kindly uh, working me into the schedule now, right, Karen? <laughs> right. I'm the the novel published on June 13th, and so I had a really hectic summer. My my publisher sent me on a on a 10 day eight city tour right after the book published, which was crazy. It it. The tour finished in New York City, where I was interviewed by Lee Child. <laughs> so, oh, wow. you know, and and that wasn't even the high point of everything that's happened for the book. So, what things, was the? What were some of the high points? What are some of the other? Uh, ones? Oh well, you know, of course there was that. Yeah, yes. tra- <laughs> touring like that was so exciting because it's not something that's normally done for an author who isn't already a household name. So that was very exciting to be able to do that. Um, even before the novel published, my uh, publisher sent me to uh, meetings of booksellers so that they could be introduced to the novel. And they also arranged two dinners for me with booksellers, one in Chicago and one in Ann Arbor here, before the book published. And um, my editor and my publicist flew out from New York to be part of the dinner and to facilitate things. Um, my UK publisher brought me to England. And I, I've actually done a book signing now in Nottingham. So, you know, that might be near the high point too it's hard to say oh that's so, so how how exciting how yeah, exciting. it's been great and I did a little tour through northern Michigan which was um very meaningful for me because I used to live in northern Michigan for 30 years right right or, yeah yes. so that like I say too many high points I can't pick just one. Oh well well you know what this is this is it's great to hear about them and to know that this book um is getting recognition it's it's thrilling I, well Thank you. Uh, now I feel like I've tried to make a pun on Thriller, which I wasn't. I but know. Anyway. It happens. <laughs> it happens. It happens. Before we go further, I'll read the short bio um, in the on the uh, back of the book. Karen Dion is the co-founder of the online writers community Backspace, the organizer of the Salt Key Writers Retreat, and a member of the International Thriller Writers, where she served on the board of directors. She has been honored by the Michigan Humanities Council as a humanities scholar and lives with her husband, Roger, in Detroit's northern suburbs and is here in the studio today with us on this lovely rainy day. What a good day for the Marsh King's daughter. That's I feel true. like the weather is evocative. Very much us. so. Yes. Um, perhaps. Um, so, um, so, Karen, 
let's talk about maybe the origin story of the book. And maybe a good place to start also might be the song. Thanks for choosing the songs for today's program. Oh, um, okay. Well, uh, I'll talk first about the song. So um, when I'm writing, I tend to listen to the same song over and over again. And I mean over and over again, constantly on repeat. My husband's um, office is next to mine, and I'm conscious of how painful that might be for someone else. But what it does is... Oh, it, no. Does he have earplugs? We <laughs> yeah. can actually, we can see it. Earplugs, yeah. Okay. <laughs> But it, and it's not that it puts me into a trance state, but there's something evocative about the song that I'm listening to for that particular book or that particular section of book. And then, um, you know, by listening to it a lot, it just resides in the background and kind of keeps the one part of my mind occupied so that the creative part can concentrate on the writing. And so what do you think, what, what did you get from this White Stripes song? You know, for me, it's, it's the beat more than anything. You know, I mean, we were all tapping our foot and, and nodding our head when it was playing. You just can't not uh, to that particular beat. So it was like, it's almost like a heartbeat, but it's then, um, it's kind of anxious and tense. And, you know, so it conveys those feelings to me as I'm, as I'm writing. It's tough, yeah. Uh, sort of relentless, yeah. Gritty, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And that fits the feel of the book. Yes, and the character in particular. She's Helena? she's really tough. Yeah. Should we tell people what the book is about? Do you mind? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, um, the Marsh King's daughter is the story of Helena, who grows up in Michigan's Upper Peninsula wilderness, and for the first twelve years of her life, she lives in a cabin on a ridge surrounded by marsh or swamp in the Tequamenon River Basin, again in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. And during those twelve years, she never sees another human being other than her mother and father, which might sound grim. But Helena loves her life. She's a little tomboy, and she loves the hunting and fishing and foraging, and she loves the marsh. She knows there's a wider world out there. Um, You know, they would see airplanes fly overhead, and they would hear a distant chainsaw or a gunshot. But she didn't care because she she loved where she was. Well, then she finds out through a series of dramatic circumstances at the age of 12 why they live like that. And that's because her father kidnapped her mother. And hid them away. And I'm not giving too much away because all that's on the first page of the book. (laughs) So um, that's half the story. And then in the other half of the story, Helena is a young mother of two little girls. She's living south of Grand Marais, still in the Upper Peninsula, and she's reinvented herself. She's put forward about 15 years of time for approximately that. Correct. Yes. And so um, she's reinvented herself because there was a lot of notoriety when she and her mother left the marsh. And so. her husband doesn't know who she who she is, what her background is. And then she learns that her father has escaped from the maximum security prison in Marquette, which is about 30 miles from her home. And he's disappeared into the marsh. Uh, he's misled the police into thinking he's heading down into the Sini Wildlife Refuge, but she knows otherwise. She knows her father. So in the present day part of the story, she has to use the hunting and tracking skills that he taught her as a little girl to hunt him down before he can come after her and and her family. So, yeah, she's one tough little girl, I would say that, and one tough woman as well. Yes. And so how did you, when did you, when when did you know when you were writing the story that that was going to be, that that Helena was going to believe that her father was coming for her? Well, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing because I've, my background is writing thrillers. 
So I've written three other novels. My first two novels were science-based thrillers, similar to what Michael Crichton writes. And I started writing those because that's what I like to read, you know, and, and many aspiring writers do that. They start writing the books that they love to read. And that was true for me, too. And the um, the first two novels were published in mass market paperback by Berkeley, which is, a you know, one of the major publishers. And it was a very exciting time for me. Um, I also then... Um, when did that happen, Karen? Just as oh, we're thinking sure. about your... Yeah, the first novel was published in 2008, and the second one in 2011. So it's been a little while. Um, these novels are actually out of print, and I'm not recommending that people go read them. Not that they're bad books, but they're not representative of what I write now. So um, The Marsh King's Daughter, as it turned out, is quite a different book. It's considered psychological suspense. How do you think that... Like, what do you think happened? Is it Was it like natural in the writing of multiple like the long form multiple novels that you feel like or was it something that your interest changed or what was what that's a great question I actually believe I stumbled into it okay so the first novels I started with plot and then created characters that would support the plot hopefully engaging and interesting characters but still it, it came with plot first then character well, for The Marsh King's Daughter, I actually woke up in the night with the first sentences of the book fully formed in my head. You just, you heard them? Yes. Sort of? It was just yes. part of... So I wasn't was dreaming the character. It no, was... it was just like, bam, the sentences were there. And because The Marsh King's Daughter is written for, in first person, it was Helena, the character who would become Helena, talking to me. So The Marsh King's Daughter started with character. And then I needed to find a story for her. So going back to your original question, you know, I had to um, examine what would her story be in terms of what a thriller writer would write, you know, what, what um, dramatic events might happen for her. Yes, because it's clear, I, I believe, even from the first few lines, that this is going to still be the thriller is, is, is the genre, like yes. that voice you were hearing. It's true. Although I will say when I was writing the book, I was writing Helena's story and I didn't clearly think to myself, oh, I'm going to write this as a thriller. Um, oh, in fact, okay. my agent kept pushing me to make it more thriller-ish because a book, of course, has to fit on a particular shelf in a bookstore and, and so forth. That's maddening to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no offense, bookstores out there. I love you. <laughs> yes. Well, people have to know how to find it. So so did you resist that, though? No, I didn't. Um, because it, it's the kind of book that I like to read. So, of course, it had a lot of action in it. I'm, I'm the kind of author that gets bored easily. So, you know, if the story doesn't excite me, then I can't write it. <laughs> right. So it has to be. So in the moment when you're writing it, you're feeling that energy. And maybe that's why you're listening to the white stripes. Yes, I think you're right. Um, so, so we have a couple of like a minute until break. Um, but maybe when we come back from break, it would be great to hear that section that you heard um, from Helena. Yeah, I'd love to share that and then, you know, go a little further with how the story came to be, because it really is quite, um, I won't say magical, but uh, very inspirational. And, and so for you, when you were thinking about like having the character come come first, um, 
and and we'll hear that. Like, I, I guess, I'm sorry, I keep thinking like, ah, we're putting off the, we're trying to, I'm not trying to make this suspenseful. It feels like I am. Anyway. Yes, um, we're talking to listeners, but we're not. Right. You're going to hear this soon. Um, because it's clear from the part that we will be hearing that this is a story that's very like intimate and very character driven. Yes, um, it absolutely is. And I, and it turned out to be psychological suspense is what we call it, you know, rather than a straight up thriller. It can be enjoyed by people who read thrillers, but um, it's much more introspective as a result. And so that's that's the key difference mm-hmm. then. If you have a psychological thriller, oh no, sorry, suspense, then it's because... Yeah, it's much more internal. The um, interiority you know, of the character. Right. Is, is, uh, is... You always have external and internal conflict in any story, but um, the characters, the it's their psychological makeup that drives the story as much as what happens. Well, and I'd like to talk later also about um, how you got the child psychological portrait like the 12 year old helena down but let's take a short break and then we'll come back and now listeners are hopefully on the edge of their seats for a couple of things to come later in the program um today karen dion is here the marsh king's daughter the novel on the table with us we've got stephanie behind the glass and rogers our studio audience um t hetzel and we'll be back shortly Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did. I'm T. Hetzel today. Karen Dion is here. Her novel, The Marsh King's Daughter. Um, you just heard part of the Inception soundtrack. So, That's right. So thanks for picking the songs, Karen. So what? why this one? Well, the um, I tend to listen to uh, music. Let me try this again. A movie soundtrack as I write. And the reason for that is because um, a movie soundtrack follows a, like a story arc. You know, it has quiet moments and it has dramatic moments and it, it itself tells the story of the movie. And so, again, you know, I find that really inspiring to play, you know, that kind of very emotional music in the background, whether it's, you know, for a chase scene or a quiet, eerie moment or whatever it might be. So Inception was the soundtrack for The Marsh King's Daughter. 
It's it's so interesting to sort of imagine you in your 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 study with the music and going. cranked up very loud. Very loud. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's, That's the key. only way to listen to music. To be surrounded by <laughs> that, it. That's yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. Um okay. Well, let's do you mind can we hear some of the Marsh King's daughter? Yeah, like before the break I was saying how I woke up in the night with the first sentences of the Marsh King's daughter fully formed in my head. And again, I was not dreaming about a character. It was just Bam, there they were. And these are the sentences. If I told you my mother's name, you'd recognize it right away. My mother was famous, though she never wanted to be. Hers wasn't the kind of fame anyone would wish for. J.C. Dugard, Amanda Berry, Elizabeth Smart, that kind of thing, though my mother was none of them. So I thought to myself, well, this is interesting. This character is the daughter of a kidnapped girl and the man who took her. And I could see that that would have story possibilities. It was intriguing. But remember, this was the middle of the night. And so I was in that dream, sleepy state where I couldn't get up and write the sentences down. So I repeated them over and over in my head so I would be sure to remember them in the morning. Well, lo and behold, in the morning, they still looked good because, you know, a middle-of-the-night idea doesn't always... <laughs> but you didn't write it down. No, I, I didn't write you might down. have had a notepad nope, nope. next to the... Oh, nope. my gosh, and you still remembered it, though. I did. So the next morning... Meant to be, then, yes, Karen. Meant to be. I wrote those sentences, sentences down, and then I wrote a little bit more in her voice. And it was basically um, the character telling me who she was. And what I think is interesting is is all of that is now the first page of the novel. So this is this is what I wrote the next morning so it's as a continuation. As sort of a prologue. Mm-hmm. Or an introduction. Um, you'd recognize my mother's name if I told it to you, and then you'd wonder, briefly, because the years when people cared about my mother are long gone, as she is. Where is she now? And didn't she have a daughter while she was missing? And whatever happened to the little girl? I could tell you that I was 12 and my mother 28, when we were recovered from her captor, that I spent those years living in what the papers describe as a rundown farmhouse surrounded by swamp in the middle of Michigan's Upper Peninsula, that while I did learn to read, thanks to a stack of National Geographic magazines from the 1950s and a yellowed edition of the collected poems of Robert Frost, I never went to school, never rode a bicycle, never knew electricity or running water, that the only people I spoke to during those 12 years were my mother and father, that I didn't know we were captives until we were not. I could tell you that my mother passed away two years ago, and while the news media covered her death, you probably missed it because she died during a news cycle heavy with more important stories. I can tell you what the papers did not. She never got over the years of captivity. She wasn't a pretty, articulate, outspoken champion of the cause. There were no book deals for my timid, self-effacing wreck of a mother, no cover of time. My mother shrank from attention the way arrowroot leaves wither after a frost. But I won't tell you my mother's name, because this isn't her story. It's mine. So, as I said, this is what I wrote up that morning, and it just astonishes me that it's now the first page of the book. And you'll notice, so, one thing that I think is interesting is the setting for the book. When I wrote up those paragraphs the next morning, I almost gave the book an urban setting because I was thinking about the girls, women in Cleveland who were kidnapped and held captive for so long, essentially in plain sight. You know, it's a horrible thing that happened to them. But intriguing, too, as a writer, how how could they be hidden away like that with the little girl and so forth? But I thought perhaps that was a little obvious. So as I was writing these paragraphs, 
I set the book in this cabin on a ridge surrounded by marshland. Well, the reason I chose that is because my husband and I lived in the Upper Peninsula for 30 years. We actually homesteaded in... Um, and built a cabin in the 1970s. We moved to uh, the Upper Peninsula with our infant daughter. She was six weeks old at the time, <laughs> which I know sounds insane to me now. But um, we lived in a tent, and we um, built a little cabin. We carried water from a stream. We sampled wild foods. So while our living circumstances were not as extreme as Helena's, this is an area that I'm very familiar with. And we went on, we didn't live in that lifestyle for only maybe two or three years without running water, but we lived in the Upper Peninsula for 30. And our objective in moving to the Upper Peninsula was to live closer to nature. And so we paid attention to nature. So, you know, as I was writing the novel set in this place, it was very engaging for me because it was almost like writing a memoir. You know, um, I we paid attention to where blueberries grow and what time of year this and that is ripe. And we knew animal calls and things like that and the seasons. So again, I was writing from a place of, of knowledge. And I love. Yes, absolutely. I've called this book my love letter to the Upper Peninsula. So you, you nailed that. And um, one thing, oh, you know, when we were talking about highlights before, well, how about a rave review in the New York Times? <laughs> that was definitely a high point for for an author. Um, oh, completely. Yes. I was like, okay, kill me now, because it's not going to get better than this. <laughs> well, and then then there's a film yes. option. Yes, we've sold the film option, too. So well, there you um, go. Yeah. So who knows? I know. You can't it's pretty it's, crazy. It's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but in the... Um, in the review, the reviewer said that um, two elements make the Dion's book so superb. That's the quote. <laughs> and one is um, the authenticity of the setting. And after talking about it a little bit, he said, you can tell that the author's knowledge goes deeper than Wikipedia. And I thought, you know, he could see that. And it's true because my earlier novels were fairly heavily researched for setting and, and the science aspect of them. But as I was writing The Marsh King's Daughter, there were so many details that I realized I just knew these things from having lived in the Upper Peninsula so long. And I don't think I ever would have found that level of detail by doing research uh, online. It's like you can feel the air around you in the pages. Yes, Thank you for saying that. Yeah, so that's the case. So, um, but, you know, as far as the evolution of the book is concerned, I had a character and I had a setting, but I still didn't have a story for her at this point. But it sounds like you had this fledgling story because of those first lines, because of those other, those those women's names that we know from the news. Right. Um, so you, you knew sort of a what had happened to her or a situation. Yes. And and in the subsequent days after I wrote this first page, I wrote little snippets in her voice, such as imagining what it was like for her mother to give birth under such horrible circumstances with, you know, only the, the man who had kidnapped you to help and so forth. And so basically Helena wouldn't stop talking to me. <laughs> so I realized I needed to find a story for her. So at that point, I took my childhood fairy tale books off the shelf because I've always loved books. I mean, I've always loved fairy tales, the darker, the better. And I like books. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think every reader cut their teeth on these horrible fairy, fairy tales from Anderson and Grimm without really thinking, oh, they're horrible. You just, I know. As a kid, you're just like, 
this, cool. this, this is out there too. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so, um, but I also like books like A1 Ivy's The Snow Child, uh, which is set in 1920s Alaska, where she grew up and, um, and homesteaded too. So there is a similarity there, but it parallels a fairy tale, The Snow Child. So I started paging through my books of fairy tales. And when I found the fairy tale, The Marsh King's Daughter, I was just astonished because the fit is is so perfect. For people who haven't read the book, um, The Marsh King's Daughter is one of Hans Christian Andersen's longer fairy tales. And um, in the fairy tale, the daughter is the offspring of a beautiful Egyptian princess and the evil Marsh King, as is my character in this book, the daughter of an innocent and a monster. And in the fairy tale... Um, Helga is is the character's name in the fairy tale, which is where I got Helena, of course, because I was decided to parallel the fairy tale for the trajectory of the story. So in the fairy tale, Helga, by day, she's beautiful like her mother, but she has her father's wicked, wild temper. And then at night, that flips. So she takes on her mother's gentle nature in the form of a hideous frog. So the fairy tale is at heart, you know, it's like the struggle of good and bad that we all have within each, and, each, and, ourselves, and, and, and which I, is going to win out. <laughs> and I love the part where you have Helena say, but frogs are good, or I like frogs or something. Yeah, and that was fun. And it makes me laugh when I read that part, because she grew up in the marsh, so she doesn't think frogs are hideous. And, <laughs> and she was saying it to Cousteau and Calypso, um, but anyway, yes. that's so. Um, well, well, you know what? We were thinking that maybe you would read a little bit more of the book, right, Karen? So sure, sure. Perhaps this would be a good, good time. Okay, be glad to. So, um, you know, I read the introduction where Helena is basically saying how she's going to tell her story. So, um, this is a little bit about what life was like on uh, in the marsh. She says. The papers called my father the Marsh King after the ogre in the fairy tale. I understand why they gave him that name, as anyone who's familiar with the fairy tale will as well. But my father was no monster. I want to make that absolutely clear. I realize that much of what he said and did was wrong, but at the end of the day, he was only doing the best he could with what he had, same as any other parent. And he never abused me, at least not in a sexual way, which is what a lot of people assume. I also understand why the papers called our place a farmhouse. It looks like an old farmhouse in the pictures. Two stories, weathered clapboard siding, double-hung casement windows so crusted with dirt it, that it was impossible to see in or out, wood-shingled roof. The outbuildings contribute to the illusion, a three-sided slab wood utility shed, a woodshed, an outhouse. We called our place the cabin. I can't tell you who built our cabin or when or why, but I can guarantee it wasn't farmers. The cabin sits on a narrow, densely forested ridge of maple and beech and alder that juts out of the marsh like an overweight woman lying on her side. One small hump for her head, a slightly bigger hump for her shoulders, a third for her massive hips and thighs. Our ridge was part of the Tequamanan River Basin, 129 square miles of wetland that drained into the Tequamanan River, though I didn't learn that until later. Our ridge was far enough from the main branch of the Tequamanan that it couldn't be seen by fishermen or canoeists. The swamp maples that grew around the cabin make it nearly invisible from the air as well. You might think the smoke from our wood stove would have given away our location, but it never did. If anyone happened to notice during the years we lived there, they must have assumed the smoke came from a fisherman's dinner or a hunting cabin. At any rate, my father is nothing if not cautious. I'm sure he waited months after he took my mother before he risked a fire. 
My mother told me that for the first fourteen months of her captivity, my father kept her shackled to the heavy iron rings set in a corner post of the woodshed. I'm not sure I believe her. I've seen the handcuffs, of course, and used them myself when the need arose. But why would my father go to all the trouble of keeping her chained in the woodshed when there was no place for her to go? Nothing but grasses, as far as the eye could see, broken only by the occasional beaver or muskrat, rod, muskrat lodge or another solitary ridge. Too thick to push a canoe through, too insubstantial to walk on. The marsh kept us safe during the spring, summer, and fall. In winter, bears, wolves, and coyotes occasionally crossed the ice. One winter, as I was pulling on my boots to go to the outhouse before I went to bed, because believe me, you do not want to leave your bed to go to the outhouse in the middle of the night in the winter, I heard a noise on the porch. I assumed it was a raccoon. The night was unseasonably warm, the temperature almost above freezing, the kind of bright full moon min midwinter night that stretches the shadows and fools the hibernators into thinking it's spring. I stepped onto the porch and saw a dark shape almost as tall as me. Still thinking coon, I yelled and slammed it on the rump. Coons can make a real mess if you let them, and guess whose job it would have been to clean it up. But it wasn't a raccoon. It was a black bear, and not a young one either. The bear turned around and looked at me and chuffed. If I close my eyes, I can still smell its warm fish breath, feel my bangs flutter as it exhales in my face. Jacob, I yelled. The bear stared at me, and I stared back until my father came with his rifle and shot it. We ate bear for the rest of that winter. The carcass strung up in the utility shed looked like a person without its skin. My mother complained that the meat was greasy and tasted like fish, but what would you expect? You are what you eat, as my father says. We spread the hide in front of the fireplace in the living room and nailed it to the floor so it would stay flat. The room smelled like rotten meat until the skin side dried, but I liked sitting on my bear skin rug with my toes stretched toward the fire and a bowl of bear meat stew in my lap. My father has a better story. Years ago, long before my mother and me, when he was still a teenager, he was hiking through the woods north of his parents' place on Nauakwa Lake near Grand Marais to check his snare line. The snow was extra deep that year, and another six inches had fallen overnight, so the trail and the markers he used to navigate it had gotten buried. He wandered off the path before he realized it, and all of a sudden his foot broke through the snow, and he fell into a big hole. Snow and sticks and leaves fell down with him, but he wasn't hurt because he landed on something warm and soft. As soon as he realized where he was and what had happened, he scrambled up and out, but not before he saw that he was standing on a tiny wee bear cub no bigger than his hand. The cub's neck was broken. Every time my father told that story, I wished his story belonged to me. Thank you, Karen. We'll take a short break and then we'll be back to talk more today on the program. Karen Dion is here, the Marsh King's daughter. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers. We'll be back.
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Karen Dion is here, the Marsh King's daughter, the book on the table with us. Uh, and a quick thank you, a big thank you um, to Carolyn and Katie at Putnam um, for helping make all this happen, too. Exactly. Um, so um, right before the break, the last words were um, from Helena, obviously, and I wished his that story, his story was mine. Right. And I think there's... That's a bit chilling. Yes. And readers can get a sense of, of what her character is like. Um, you know, she was a little girl who was raised without, you know, the, the niceties of life. And so um, she idolized her father. Her father deliberately cultivated her to be like him. So he was creating her in his image, which tapped into her natural tendencies too. So um, there's a few, you know, parts of the book where, um, you know, she goes hunting and she, she kills her first rabbit and her first deer and so forth because this is just a normal progression for her. Um, and her father gives her tattoos to commemorate these moments. Yes, and she wants that, you know. And um, readers might re or listeners might remember that um, I gave her a stack of National Geographic magazines from the 1950s. Um, I wanted her to be able to learn how to read and know something else of the outside world, although she doesn't find out until later that it was very dated information. Besides which, every cabin in Michigan has a stack of National Geographic magazines, right? <laughs> so it would be logical for them to be there. And so, um, but it, it's, there are so many aspects of her upbringing that touch my heart. And, and, you know, she liked it, but they're really heartbreaking. Like, for instance, she pretends she found an article about the Yanomami tribe in Brazil. And she relates to the children who are, you know, like romping the forest half naked and hunting and fishing because that's essentially what she does, too. So she pretends that they're her brothers and sisters as she's growing up. And, you know, again, you know, it's logical in, in the eyes of a five or a six year old. She doesn't yet know that there's anything wrong with her life. But as a reader, um, you read those sections and it's like, oh, poor little girl. <laughs> right, right. And the passage that you just read for us, Karen, that's because because we talked about earlier about how the structure of the book is um, in, in two different times. The time when she's um, young, when she's 12, um, but it begins when she's 27. Right. Um, and then yeah. uh, and with her father breaking out of prison. Right. Um, but you move between those two stories and bring us to like um, critical moments um, when she and her mother man yeah i'm not going to give anything away cuz they do escape we know that they right leave you know that from point, the first from page. the very beginning yes um so i wonder about so we talked about how this was also a, a psychological suspense um novel um and the in the passage that we just heard it's her as a the 27 year old helena reflecting and telling us the story that's right um and but in this section, what I thought was also slightly unsettling is that she leads off by saying he's not a monster. And this is when she's 27. As an adult, that's right. Um, but as the book goes on, we see that maybe she's able to recover more memories. Yes, it's a tricky thing to... because um, we're all the product of how we were raised. 
and um, you know it shapes us to one degree or another. I've always been fascinated by people who rise above a less than perfect childhood in order to make something out of themselves. So that's certainly the case for Helena here. And um, what makes it so much of a psychological thriller, really at heart, it's a father-daughter story. Um, You've got this cat and mouse game going on in the present, but the chapters in the past help to explain how we got to the present, you know, and they're a crucial part of the story. So in Helena's early years, she loves her father, and she actually loves him, you could say, with the purest love a child ever had for their father, because there's no mitigating influences in her life. Well, the there's, mother. Yes. But the mother um, is distant, um, kind of a shadowy figure in the background. Um, Helena learns from her father to disdain her mother. So, you know, there are a lot of complicated psychological factors at work as she's yes, growing up. It seems like she's damaged. And in a way that that's how that's what I'm wondering, too, is how are you able in the writing because you're 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 showing that. And as a child, some of the things are are deeply unsettling or creepy that she she says or because you do see the disdain for her mother. I like things like um, when the father uh, beats the mother as she deserves it. Like, I think, I think I see that she deserves it or so, but what was interesting in the passage you read us too, Karen, is that um, it seems like when she's telling the story with the bear and she's saying, I wish that story was mine. That is also, it makes us wonder about who is this person? Like she's not like, she's a, a dark hero. She is. And, and I wanted the readers to wonder as they as the book unfolds, well, what kind of a mother is she going to be? Because um, her mother was so cowed and so beaten and, and just a young girl herself when she was abducted. I will say this, um, in most of the cases, like for J.C. Degard and so forth, in real life, having a child is their salvation. But I was crafting the story in such a way that the mother didn't bond with Helena when she was young. She had a difficult birth, and she was uncon- you know, had a fever and infection and so forth, um, contriving the situation so that Helena, like I say, yes, would have just night and day. You know, the mother is in the background, the father is, is her world. And so, um, yeah, so then... Those early years, Helena loves her father unconditionally, worships him. And then after she leaves the marsh, um, she learns how bad her father really is, and she hates her father, not so much for what he did to her mother, but for all the things about the outside world that he never taught her that she felt she should have known, because she knows nothing about technology or pop culture or social norms. And so... Every time she turns around, she feels like a fool. And so it's it's very difficult time for her. Um, the grandparents are not supportive. Uh, again, you know, as a writer, you can contrive the situations to be quite extreme. So she hates her father. Then when she turns 18, she reinvents herself. She changes her name. She moves away, changes her appearance. So she denies her father. And then, of course, by the end of the book, she has to come to terms with who and and what she is. So it's that journey that makes it, again, um, psychological suspense. And were were you, how difficult was it to write some, or was it not difficult to write the warm and tender scenes while also between the father and daughter, um, while also knowing in the back of your mind that you, in your story, he's, he's a, He's a psychopath. 
you know, it's an interesting, <laughs> I know. So, and, I, and, I was like, is there another way to say this? I don't know. I don't think so. I think that covers it. And the thing is, an author, when they write characters, good characters, bad characters, you actually become that character because there's a little bit of method acting involved. And Look out, so, Roger. I know, exactly. <laughs> We're in the studio together. <laughs> watch oh, out. Watch out. It's me. Okay. Yeah. He's behind the glass. <laughs> so um, I actually find the father a sympathetic character, too. That seems to come through in the writing. Yeah. In the story. Because like every parent, he's doing the best he can. She said that in that passage. She's doing the best he can with what he had. Now, what there was going on in his upbringing, I've hinted at it in the book. But obviously, for a person to co- turn out so badly, there was some cause for that. Um Maybe it was just strictly genetic. It's hard to say. But regardless, um, I feel that he, too, is a sympathetic character. So, you know, writing their interaction, um, I had sympathy for both characters. Or empathy or whatever. Yeah, I guess that's the better word. Um, and before before we came on the air, you said, actually, that um, from what we heard, we're, that's in the first 40 or so pages, right? right. Mm-hmm. And you had talked with... Tell, could you tell us a little bit about... Um, Oh, yeah. Well, um, so some of some of my background for, you know, publishing, um, some people think this is my first novel. And as as I've already mentioned, it's not. It's my fourth published novel, but it's the first in hardcover, the first to sell at auction, the first to sell in so many territories. We've we've sold translation rights in 25 countries around the world. It's actually a bestseller right now in Germany, which has been fun. So, um, yeah, so it's is what we in the industry called my breakout novel. But I've been around publishing for 18 years. And during that time, um, fairly early on, I was living in the Upper Peninsula when I was starting to write, and I didn't know any writers in person. So that's when I, I started hanging out at an online writers discussion group it was kind of like the Wild West. There were there were up-and-coming talented writers. There were nuisance posters. There were trolls. Because this was very early days in the Internet. This was in um, 2002-ish, you know, so before MySpace, before Facebook. Anyway, after one particularly crazy weekend, I emailed another writer who I knew had website experience, and I didn't know him other than that. And I said, how hard would it be to form our own place where we could talk about writing without all this noise. So we set up Backspace. It started out as a discussion forum. In the first week, um, I I had a lot of people's email addresses because I was running a little query critiquing business on the side. So I invited everybody to come and join us. A hundred writers came over that first week. Um, We quickly realized that because we owned this website, we could do whatever we wanted with it. So I started a guest speaker program using the bulletin board format, and one of our very first speakers was Lee Child. And then in with, within that first year, some of the members wanted to meet in person, which, again, we're talking 2004. <laughs> I was like, that's weird. <laughs> I don't want to meet people that I met on the Internet because, again, you know, very early days. We didn't have a physical location, but people started talking about, you know, well, maybe we could have a dinner in New York. And I thought, well, let's have a little writer's conference, and then people can write it off as a business expense. And so that's what we did. So in 2005, we had the first Backspace Writer's Conference. Um, Lee Child came. <laughs> he's, so, he's so generous to other writers. I just can't say enough, enough good about him. And um, also David Morrell and um, 
Barry Eisler and some other writers, you know, I weighted it toward thriller writers because that's what I wrote too. So the Backspace conferences um, went on for nine years. Um, We did two events per year for a lot of that time. And so I became very well acquainted with many other writers, agents, editors, publishing professionals. In fact, what I think is kind of fun is my now editor, I've known him professionally for 12 years because of the Backspace conferences. And he actually has keynoted at my conferences in New York and I've I've moderated panels and I had always wanted to work together because he's very well respected in the in the thriller world and so um, when the book went to auction he was one that bid on the book and um, his the publishing house Putnam came in as the high bid so I got my dream editor and my dream publishing and what's house his and name? all was good what's Mark Tavani oh uh, yeah. hello Mark yay <laughs> let's take a short break and then we'll be back all right um I'm so glad we got to hear about Backspace, too. Um, uh, Today on the program, Karen Dion is here, the Marsh King's daughter. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. Living Writers, I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Karen Dion is here, the Marsh King's daughter. Lee Child says, sensationally good psychological suspense. Yes. And as I was saying before the break, um, I do know Lee through my Backspace conferences. And I just want to emphasize that um, over the years, I asked many favors on behalf of Backspace. You know, come be a guest speaker. Come talk at my conference. I never asked for a favor for myself until I wrote The Marsh King's Daughter. And he very generously came through with a, an endorsement. And uh, then also, it was his idea to um, interview me at a bookstore in New York City as part of my tour. So, again, very, very generous man. Oh, well, and it doesn't seem like this is the end of the relationship, and certainly not with Putnam, too. Right. So you have a current project in the works. I do. Um, uh, Putnam bought two books from me as so as part of a, a package deal. And so even though I had no idea what I was going to write next, I was, sure, I'll write another book. <laughs> so my editor, um, we talked about whether it would be a sequel to The Marsh King's Daughter, and we both agreed not. Uh, we felt that we had I felt that I had told Helena's complete story in the book, and so did he. So at the same time, though, you want a next novel to appeal 
to readers of The Marsh King's Daughter. You want to give them basically the same but different. So my editor laid out um, four criteria for the second book, which is that it would be another psychological suspense, um, same or similar setting, so it's also set in the Upper Peninsula, um, that it would have a fairy tale element and an intricate structure, which, you know, as a writer, I especially appreciated that he isolated that because that's one of the things I'm most proud of in The Marsh King's Daughter with the intertwining stories and and tense shifts and multiple flashbacks and the fairy tale woven into the story, too. It's it's a fairly complicated book, which is a challenge to write, which is excites a writer, you know, from the craft standpoint. So then the challenge, I, I came up with an idea fairly early on, and he accepted the idea. But the challenge in writing it has been not to make it a repeat of The Marsh King's Daughter, not to incorporate the fairy tale in the same way and so forth. So, how are you um, managing that? That's really in- intriguing. Like, yeah, it was... Tale, how do you it was, have that um, be evocative, but not... I know. Writing? Like, I, I tried to sleep a lot to come up with an idea, but it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> this one I had to work a little harder to, to uh, come up with. And... Um, well, we can't always hear voices, can No, <laughs> unfortunately not. <laughs> I think that was a one-off. <laughs> I really do. So um, it's just takes. So this book, it's taken me more time to get to know the character herself, you know. And it, when you start a novel, there's so many directions that it can go, and you know, depending on this situation or that situation, and what the character's qualities are, and so forth. So, uh, but it's rolling now, and I, I hope to have it ready soon because a number of the foreign publishers also bought two books, and so they're waiting for me to finish this book which no, is a no, little no pressure no not at all <laughs> not at all and so you you've brought a um a, a little something yes you? i'd be happy to read it's just the first page but it introduces the the story and the character um so we don't really have a finished title for it at this point so this is untitled i guess we'll call it uh there's two epigraphs at the beginning truth is like the sun you can shut it out for a time but it ain't going away and that's from Elvis Presley. And then the next is from Sir David Attenborough. And he says, I believe the abominable snowman may be real. I think there may be something in that. <laughs> Fun, huh? <laughs> okay, so this is how the story begins. And it, it's headed Rachel. Sometimes when I close my eyes, there is a rifle in my hands. The rifle is a Remington 700 bolt action centerfire. Carbon steel barrel, synthetic stock, four-round capacity, Xmark Pro trigger. There's nothing special about this particular rifle, nothing to distinguish it from any other Remington except that this is the rifle that killed my mother. In my vision, the hands holding the rifle are small. The fingers are pudgy. I am nine years old. The Remington is heavy. It is almost as tall as me. I have never fired a rifle before. After this, I never will. Other than this single fateful moment when my child-sized finger pulls the trigger, I have never touched a gun. I have no idea how I was able to fire it, except that I had watched my father shoot this rifle many times. In my vision, I am standing over my mother. The rifle is pointing at her chest. Her mouth is open, and her eyes are closed. Her chest is red. My father runs into the front hallway. Rachel, he screams when he sees me. He drops to his knees, gathers my mother in his arms, looks up at me. His face is a caricature, a cartoon sketch of shock and horror. He rocks my mother for a long time as if she is a baby, as if she is alive. At last he lays her gently on the worn parquet floor and gets slowly to his feet. 
He takes the rifle from my trembling hands and looks at me with a sorrow greater than I can comprehend and turns the rifle on himself. Not so, says the golden orb spider from the middle of her web in the corner of the empty horse stall where I'm sitting on a pile of musty straw with my eyes closed and my arms wrapped around my knees. Your father killed your mother before he killed himself. I don't understand why the spider is lying. Spiders normally tell the truth. The spider regards me solemnly from eight pairs of eyes. How do you know? I can't resist asking. She wasn't there when my parents died. I was. I know, she says. We all know. Her spiderlings skitter about the edges of the web as insubstantial as dust motes and nod. I want to tell the spider again that she is wrong, that I know better than anyone what happened the day my parents died, and that I understand the ramifications of my childhood crime better than she ever will because I've been living with the consequences for 12 years. But spiders aren't particularly adept at higher thinking. I, on the other hand, have given this a great deal of careful thought, and this is my conclusion. Some people's lives are defined by a moment. There's the before and the after, with the two halves bearing so little resemblance to each other they might as well belong to two different people. I'm not talking about ordinary life-changing events such as getting married or the birth of a child or the death of a spouse. I'm talking about a single fateful moment so unexpected and irrevocable and powerful it completely wipes out everything that might have been. Killing your parent is such a moment. Unless a person also happens to be an unlucky member of the wrongful death club, I guarantee he or she can't begin to comprehend the cost of admission. After I accidentally shot my mother and my father in temporary insanity then shot himself, I was no longer the person I would have been. Once you've taken another person's life, it changes you, breaks you, shatters you into so many infinitesimal pieces no one and nothing can put you together again. Ask any drunk driver who killed a pedestrian, any driver who fell asleep at the wheel and plowed into another car, any hunter who thought the friend or brother-in-law he shot was a deer, anyone who found a loaded rifle when they were too young to know what it could do and picked it up with no idea of what was about to happen. The police ruled my parents' deaths a murder-suicide perpetrated by my father. All of the news reports I've been able to find online agree. Peter James Cunningham, age 35, murdered his wife, Jennifer Marie Cunningham, age 33, for undetermined reasons, and then turned the rifle on himself. Reports regarding their only daughter are mixed. Some say, I saw my parents die, and that's why I ended up in the mental hospital. Others that I found their bodies, and this is what set me over the edge. I would have told them I was responsible if I had been able to speak. When I came out of my catatonia three weeks later, I made sure everyone who would listen knew what I had done. But to this day, no one believes me, not even the spider. So that's the first opening of the new book. Thank you, Karen. Is, is that going to be an unreliable narrator? I think so. <laughs> She's got a few strikes against her. <laughs> but hey, you know what? You you had said that um, you had some words for aspiring writers, and we, we've got a minute. Um... Yeah, well, I, w I would really like people who are listening, if whether it, especially aspiring writers, but even if you're published and you haven't yet reached your publishing goals, um, one thing about... Uh, the Backspace conferences that, that I ran for so many years, I've seen a lot of people get published, and I know that it happens differently for each person. And 
there were times, you know, I had modest success with my early books. The conferences were very successful. There were times when I considered giving up writing in favor of the conferences because it was very satisfying to help other people reach their publishing goals, too. But then in the lead up to my 2013 conference, I happened to notice that a woman who had gotten her agent at one of my previous conferences was coming out with her second book. And I hadn't written anything yet. And so that was my wake-up call. So that was the moment when I said, okay, I'm going to just stop organizing the conferences and concentrate on my writing. Marsh King's daughter happened. And so, again, my, my advice to people is don't give up because you don't know what might be around the corner for you if you just keep going. Uh, thanks, Karen. Thanks so much for talking today and, and for saying that. Well, I'm not the exception, I like to think. So, you know, I'd love to, I'd love to hear lots of stories like mine. Oh, me too. Me yeah. too. We'll, we'll come back again, won't you? Thanks. I'd love to. And we'll talk about the next book. Perfect. Um, <laughs> so today on the program, Karen Dion has been here, the Marsh King's daughter, her, her psychological suspense novel. Um, thanks for listening, everyone. Happy birthday to Aunt Sue and Cree. Um, I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. Nights in white satin Never reaching the end Letters I've written Never meaning to send Beauty I'd always missed With these eyes before Just what the truth is I can't say anymore Cause I love you
And that right there gives you a taste of what today's DSR is going to be about. Welcome to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor, to Thursday edition of the D- of the D- Daily Sports Report. I'm your host, Daniel Thompson, joined, joined on the other side of the glass by Nate Sorensen, uh, Teddy Gutkin, Alec Geis, and Blake Berthand. We have a very exciting uh, d- day of sports. Obviously, the World Series <coughs> going down, and d- WCBM won one for once. I uh, you know that the Houston Astros were the official WCBN Sports Major League Baseball team. And we've been making it clear on the DSR. I know every oh, time man. I've been on here, I've made a point of emphasizing this is the singular WCBN Sports <laughs> Major League Baseball team. I know we were on the uh, Diamondbacks for a little bit, but that doesn't count. We're one for one, not one for two. Yeah, I just don't want people to think, you know, maybe, hey, we're just jumping on the bandwagon after they won. No. We've been here since 2014. We have been with the 